0: HPPodcraft.com By the light of a tallow candle which had been placed on one end of a rough table, a man was reading something written in a book. It was an old account book, greatly worn, and the writing was not apparently very legible, for the man sometimes held the page close to the flame of the candle to get a stronger light upon it. The shadow of the book would then throw into obscurity half of the room, darkening a number of faces and figures. For besides the reader, eight other men were present. Seven of them sat against the rough log walls, silent and motionless, and the room being small, not very far from the table. By extending an arm, any one of them could have touched the eighth man, who lay on the table, face upward, partly covered by a sheet, his arms at his sides. He was dead.
1: That was the first paragraph from Ambrose Bierce. The damned thing. And all the men here on this podcast are still alive. And that includes me, Chris Lackey.
2: And that includes me, Chad Pfeiffer. My heart is black, but it still pumps blood. I'm with the living. And also uh, also living is our reader who we just heard there, Mr. Stephen Brewster.
1: Mr. The Brewster
2: he's back. Get me Brewster.
1: Well, you know, this is Ambrose Bierce month that we're, we're yes. covering right here. and That's uh,
2: what we've decided. We're doing Ambrose Bierce stories all month.
1: I'm a fan of Ambrose Bierce. I've actually read some of his non-scary stuff before, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm very excited and quite happy with this story and looking forward to reading more of his stuff.
2: Yeah, before we jump into this story specifically, I think maybe we should do a quick overview of the guy. Um, he's got a really crazy life, so it'd be difficult to do in just a short amount of time. Right. But just a little quick overview, and then we'll probably, as we go on, we'll get more into him over the month but before we talk about all of that uh we have a kickstarter that we just went live with
1: we're doing kickstarter man it's happening
2: and this isn't for any uh highfalutin creative project or anything like that it actually is related to the necronomicon which is a lovecraft convention that's happening this august what are the dates august 23rd through the 25th right it's that weekend in providence rhode island it's going to be a really cool event with all sorts of uh, lovecraft scholarly luminaries there and gaming and music and movies and all of that kind of good stuff. We were asked if we wanted to participate, and we actually thought, well, maybe we'll come out there and do a live show, right? Like we did in Leeds. Yep. Uh, Of course, we do live pretty far away, both of us, (laughs) from Providence, and uh, we don't make enough dough from the show to get ourselves out there. No. So we decided we'd just put up a Kickstarter and see if we could raise the funds for us to travel to the event. Exactly. Basically, the way you would pay to get admission to it, if you are going, is by contributing to the Kickstarter.
1: If you're not going, we're going to record everything there, and we're also going to do a few interviews with some people that we've had on the show before and maybe some people that we haven't and try and have some cool interactions and we're going to have all that stuff for download for people that contribute
2: to the Kickstarter. So folks want to contribute, we'll put up the link in our show notes and you can go over there, you can grab a ticket and uh, kind of pre-buy this event. Let's see if we can make it happen, okay? Yep. Back to Ambrose Beers.
1: Who is Ambrose Beers?
2: I am mostly familiar with him from the story An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge.
1: I read that story when I was probably 13 years old and I remember it to this day, it resonated with me.
2: I actually never read the story. I'm familiar with that because there was an episode of The Twilight Zone that was an adaptation of that story. Ah. Um, or actually, I think it was a, a short film that somebody had made that Rod Serling was so impressed with that he actually just put it on as an episode of The Twilight Zone. It might have been the final episode. I'm not sure about that. But now, uh, what's the content of that story? I mean, just
1: well, I don't, I don't want to spoil it, but it's about a guy who I believe is a, a Southern soldier. He gets kidnapped and he's going to be hung and they have him on a bridge he's got this rope tied around his neck and then they push him off the bridge but then the rope breaks and and then it's kind of his escape is the story it's a really cool story
2: well Ambrose Pierce was a Midwesterner um, and he himself fought in the Civil War and a lot of what he saw during that war left quite an impression on him, obviously. Yeah, uh, and that's why it informs a lot of his fiction. He ended up as a journalist in San Francisco after the war. He worked at the Examiner for Hearst, uses he right. you know kind of associated with Hearst. Mm-hmm. Beers unfortunately had a very tragic personal life. Yeah, he had a few kids, two, I think two boys and a girl. Right. One of his sons committed suicide, and the other died from some complications related to alcoholism. Right? Didn't have a great relationship with his wife and they wound up getting a divorce, I believe. And then his quote unquote death is incredibly mysterious.
1: Yeah, they don't know what happened to him. He just kind of disappeared.
2: Yeah, the the story is that he took off with Pancho Villa's army during the Mexican Revolutionary War and and then maybe he was hung somewhere, some people say he was shot in a firing line somewhere. Some people say he didn't even do that. He didn't he wasn't sympathetic to Villa and wouldn't have taken off with them, So it's just a complete mystery. Nobody knows what happened yeah. to him, which is pretty insane. Yeah. But we'll talk more about that as we go. Now, this story, The Damned Thing, first appeared in Tales from New York Town Topics on December 7th, 1893. And uh, let's recap what we heard in the opening, what's going on.
1: we got a bunch of guys in a room. There's only a candle lighting the room. One man is reading out of a book, and the other guys are just kind of sitting around One guy is dead.
2: It's an odd opening. That's a, you know, it's a punchline almost to that, that one of the men is is laying on a table dead. I started to get that there was going to be a sense of humor to this in the next paragraph when he says, they all seem to be waiting for something. The dead man only was without expectation. And another sentence in here that I thought was so great was he was talking about the, the night sounds and how they're different from the sounds of the day and the birds. The bird calls are different. He, he says it's that mysterious chorus of small sounds that seem always to have been but half heard when they have suddenly ceased, as if conscious of an indiscretion. Hmm. And that really, yeah. it really nails it. And it reminds me of, you know, when you walk out, you'd there'd be this huge chorus of crickets and then you'd step outside and they'd all go silent suddenly. Yeah. And, and, and it, it puts a funny cast on it like the read, like you just caught 350 crickets masturbating and they all just went they all just went silent because they're mortified you know as if conscious of an indiscretion
1: with this mood that's being set we hear coyotes outside they're night birds, and so i i'm assuming this story is set in the american southwest
2: yeah i think it is as well although i think coyotes are everywhere in the united states really yeah i think anywhere that they're a wolf population isn't. So as, as more areas have been opened up without, because wolves are kind of going away, yeah. coyotes will often come in and, and fill in that because they're not afraid of urban settings necessarily. Oh. Uh, they breed all right in that environment. They will go through garbage cans. I mean, so I think actually, I mean, there's coyotes up in around Chicago.
1: Really? I did not. Know I
2: that. know that they have problems with coyotes up in new England and stuff. So yeah, they are everywhere. Although I guess you kind of associate them with that sound of the Southwest, you know, sure, desert kind of environment. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I know we had a hard time with them in Los Angeles. There was always coyotes and things about
2: now. The other guys in the room, they all kind of look weathered. And uh, from what they're wearing, you can tell they're local guys. They're kind right. of salts of the earth farmers, that kind of thing. Except the man reading from the book.
1: Yeah, he's he's kind of dressed a little bit nicer than everybody else. And he's kind of fancy, N- not San Francisco fancy. Right. Still, But still fancy. And he's a coroner,
2: right? That's it's because he's a coroner. So he's got a little more education, a little more status than these guys, although he's of the community.
1: And this book was found within the dead man's stuff, and they are in the dead man's cabin doing an inquest, which is basically an investigation to try and figure out what exactly happened to him
2: during this process. So it's been a slow unveiling of what actually is going on. Yeah, it's a little confusing at first. And then it all suddenly clicks. Oh, okay, I see what's happening. And then our main character sort of shows up, William Harker. Mm -hmm. they've been waiting for him he apologizes for being late but he was uh what was he oh he was giving his account to a newspaper right
1: right he says well you may be giving an account to the newspaper but you're going to be under oath here so whatever you tell us is going to have to be the truth and he says well i'm going to tell you the same thing he had to sell the story as fiction because he's a writer he writes short stories he told them i may have sold it to them as fiction but this story is true and i'm going to tell you exactly what happened
2: right it's it involves fantastic things that people aren't going to believe that's why i had to publish that as a short story, but. A man this is the truth yeah. and they say all right well let's give it us. let's start this is when we find out his name who, you know who are you how old are you
1: and he asks you know do you know the deceased Hugh Morgan so then we find out who the dead guy is
2: when he asks Will what his involvement is with Hugh he says well I was visiting him up here to shoot and fish and i guess i also sort of wanted to study him he's an odd guy lives a solitary sort of life and you know i sometimes write stories
1: Yeah, the corner says uh and i sometimes read them and then he says oh thank you and he goes stories in general not yours yeah it was a great exchange <laughs> yeah.
2: and it made me laugh because it, it's an assumption that the uh, that will made yeah that he was talking about his stories uh-huh. as if he would heard of him before <laughs> he goes thank you and it actually reminded me which is weirdly connected to this environment when you and I went to that film festival in Texas, yeah. in El Paso, yeah. there was a guy we were hanging out with a lot who was a really nice guy. He was a little mm-hmm. kooky, kind of a hippie-ish dude who makes documentary films. Right. But I, I remember that was when Obama was running for office the first time. And this guy, there was no movie that he hadn't been involved in somehow right. in all of his stories. And <laughs> yeah. at first it seemed like, wow, this guy's really been around. But then, then his credibility started to get strained a little bit. Uh-huh. But but then we remember we met that like Mexican movie star and he seemed to know who he was and stuff. So it was yeah. all very, it was it was really strange. So, yeah. but the guy had said he'd done some writing for Obama's campaign. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that's cool. The next day we were at breakfast and sitting down in kind of the crappy Continental Breakfast area, and they were, sh- CNN was on and they were showing recaps of the speech that Obama had given the night before. Uh-huh. And to nobody in particular, I said, because you were at the table with a couple other people, I said, yeah, Obama's speech was pretty good last night. And he goes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah, I do remember that. Like he took credit for it. For the speech, yeah. There's no way he wrote the speech. There's no
1: way he wrote that speech.
2: He was in El Paso
1: with us and Juarez. Yeah, Yeah, no.
2: (laughs) But funny that it made me think of that. And here, uh, Juarez is where Ambrose Bierce reportedly joined up with Pancho Villa.
1: There you go. It all connects together, dude.
2: Wandered off into nowhere.
1: This could be an episode of Connections. It could. Right now. could be.
2: Some other cool writing here when... He says stories in general, not yours. Everybody in the room kind of laughs. Yeah. He says against a somber background, humor shows highlights. I thought that was cool. Soldiers in the intervals of battle laugh easily and a jest in the death chamber conquers by surprise. It's it's true. You know, sometimes things are just so funny in the most direst situations. I agree with you. It was cool writing. And then when they ask him to give his testimony about what happened, Will whips out his story that he wrote for the newspaper. I'm, you know, he's going to he's not going to retell it again. He's just going to go ahead and read to them what he's already written down. So chapter two is his account of what mm-hmm. went down.
1: So it talks about how they were out early in the morning going hunting, quail hunting. So they had quail shot. They had two shotguns and a dog with
2: them. And they were uh, crossing through terrain. He calls it a chaparral, which is a sort of shrubland that is very that's only in california or mexico so i know that this is definitely the setting of southwest and they hear some kind of animal thrashing around in the in the shrubs and the bushes and hugh gets really upset yeah and agitated which doesn't make sense to will right because
1: yeah he's like a he's a wilderness man and nothing really scares him at all and he he gets his gun ready to to shoot and he says oh i wish i brought my rifle so that we could Bag a deer because he thinks it's a deer but when he sees how scared he is of it he thinks wait you're not going to shoot a deer with quail shot because quail shots really tiny little pellets as opposed to buckshot which are much bigger pellets and tiny pellets can't do much real damage to a deer or anything big right and he realizes oh wait a minute it's not a deer maybe it's a,
0: a grizzly bear
2: yeah so he jumps to his side and he cocks his shotgun as well the bushes were now quiet "'and the
0: sounds had ceased, "'but Morgan was as attentive to the place as before. "'What is it? What the devil is it?' I asked. "'That damn thing,' he replied, without turning his head. "'His voice was husky and unnatural. "'He trembled visibly. "'I was about to speak further when I observed the wild oats "'near the place of the disturbance moving in the most inexplicable way. "'I can hardly describe it. "'It seemed as if stirred by a streak of wind, "'which not only bent it but pressed it down, "'crushed it, so that it did not rise.' This movement was slowly prolonging itself directly toward us.
1: It seems like some invisible thing is moving towards them.
2: This is the first time that we cross over into kind of Lovecraftian territory where in his storytelling, Will says we so rely upon the orderly operation of familiar natural laws that any seeming suspension of them is noted as a menace to our safety, a warning of unthinkable calamity. Which Mm. is something that Lovecraft was expressing in Supernatural Horror and Literature. That idea that any small rearrangement of what seems to be natural law fills us with an enormous amount of dread. Right. That's the weird aesthetic. And and it's written so well right there.
1: Oh my God. Yeah. This whole story is just, it's great writing. It's so good. It's economical and invocative and just love it.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad we're, doing this because I just really haven't been very familiar with his work. Now, the distortion in the bushes gets closer to them and Hugh blasts away at it.
1: He starts shooting at it and this is kind of when things go crazy. Hugh runs for it. Like he just freaks out. And then as Will's trying to figure out what's happening, something slams into him and knocks him over.
2: It like shifts through the smoke and knocks him to the ground. Before I could get upon my feet and recover my gun, which seemed to have been struck
0: from my hands, I heard Morgan crying out as if in mortal agony and mingling with his cries were such hoarse, savage sounds as one hears from fighting dogs. Inexpressibly terrified, I struggled to my feet and I looked in the direction of Morgan's retreat. And may heaven in mercy spare me from another sight like that. At a distance of less than thirty yards was my friend. Down upon one knee, his head thrown back at a frightful angle, hatless, his long hair and disordered, his whole body in violent movement from side to side, backward and forward... His right arm was lifted and seemed to lack the hand. At at least I could see none. The other arm was invisible. At times, as my memory now reports this extraordinary scene, I could discern but a part of his body. It was as if he had been partly blotted out. I cannot otherwise express it. Then a a shifting of his position would bring it all back into view
2: again. Uh, It's that effect from the Horla. In the scene where he sees the Horla cross his path in the mirror and it obscures him from you yeah. know, he's invisible in the mirror and then he slowly sees himself the Horla was written a few years before this but so much of the story reminded me of that
1: yeah there's a lot of similarities uh, but I don't I, th- I think it's maybe just kind of the you know, the whole steam engine sort of thing where these, these ideas were probably in the, in the zeitgeist and people were writing about these types of things
2: yeah yeah absolutely but yeah
1: it, it, you're right it does feel a lot like the Horla and except this thing is obviously not a product of somebody's imagination because it's no killing a guy
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's right he's wrestling with it I think yeah right, yeah sweet.
1: there was a, a great line here really liked Morgan assumed all the postures of a determined wrestler vanquished by superior weight and strength so he could see him being pushed down crushed by something it's so flipping cool
2: and when he runs to him he's dead yep yeah you know, just like in the the hound you know he just runs up and the body's there oh hey wait a minute This just suddenly occurred to me, but in The Hound, when he runs up to find Sinjin dead on the ground in this similar situation, and the spirit Mm. thing kind of flies away, I think he says, the amulet, that damned thing. (laughs) Oh, does he? Yep, the amulet, that damned thing.
1: Awesome. Little tip of the hat there.
2: And then we get into chapter three. The coroner gets out of his seat, and there's a little CSI scene here where we get to see (laughs) the injuries on this body. We didn't get to see them before. There's all sorts of bruising and contusions and... The chest and sides are beaten, like, with a bludgeon, and then there's these lacerations, and the skin is torn in strips and shreds. Yeah. And then when he, there's been a handkerchief over the throat, when he pulls it away, there's a great line that says, when the handkerchief was drawn away, it exposed what had been the throat. Ugh. So instantly I knew that actually the damned thing is the ghost of a werewolf. (laughs) <laughs> I just cracked this thing wide open. This might be one of the earliest Ghost of a Werewolf stories. Uh-huh. When I do my Ghost of a Werewolf anthology, boom. <laughs> it's this going one's in going in. It's going right in there.
1: Yeah. See, I think it was the Predator.
2: <laughs> it's certainly. That's what I'm,
1: that's what I'm going for.
2: It's described with that Predator. That's all I could think when we did this in the Horla. With the predator? the predator camouflage, yeah. And
1: Danny Glover. That's all I can think about in general that's
2: usually yeah in general <laughs> well uh after that account one of the fellas one of the country bumpkins in the uh, inquiry after they've kind of looked at the body he says well i just want to ask one question mr coroner
1: he goes all right shoot what is it he goes what asylum did the last witness escape from
2: <laughs> yeah he burns him and then
1: the coroner goes mr harker what asylum did you escape from last
2: <laughs> yeah he follows through <laughs> and and Harker doesn't say anything and then uh, the is just
1: no. he gets mad and
2: then when, yeah he says because he says when you're if you're done insulting me can I get out of here yeah you yeah. can go and then actually the uh, Harker he's still a little curious before he leaves he asks you know I saw you were flipping through that book and that's Morgan's diary I recognize it seemed like you were pretty interested in something that was in there can I see it and the guy says I oh, don't no, no. corner says the book's got nothing to do with anything puts it in his coat pocket you just get out of here kid
1: the coroner finally decides okay this is what we're gonna do uh it was a mountain lion that killed him the end
2: they didn't all decide that it was a mountain lion though it was really funny when the foreman wrote down the verdict it said we the jury do find that the remains come to their death at the hands of a mountain lion but some of us thinks all the same they had fits (laughs) so there's a little dissension there's like one guy who had that pet theory he's like look my cousin's epileptic i've seen it a million times this guy had a fit and chewed himself up i've seen it, it was out his throat chewed out his own throat i've seen this it happened cousin larry he's got problems just like this all the time
1: know yeah, not a mountain lion yeah well that ends chapter three and then the fourth chapter is just sort of a reading of Hugh's
2: diary it's absolutely like the horla you know it's got that journal i mean it really is like a condensation and translation of that story it's interesting yeah this uh this little bit here Although it's written amazing. I mean, you know, I don't want to yeah. no, no, no. take anything away from the writing.
1: It also reminds me of Whisper in Darkness a little bit. Uh, Akeley, you know, how he was sort of writing the letters. And you can can see that he's menaced by these things. You know, he's a man out by himself living out there. This reminds me of that. So yeah, sure. Lovecraft got a little bit of inspiration from this as well.
2: Oh, obviously. I mean, even with the, it starts with the dogs. Yeah. This dog is running around and going in circles and, and seems to be going crazy. But when he's in the home, he's fine. It's only when he's out there. And then he even asks, can a dog see with his nose? I mean, does he, the things that he smells, do they create an image of the thing that's emitting them? Mm -hmm. Uh, So he's getting into that territory that like dogs can hear sounds and they can smell things that we can't hear. Yeah. And then there's crazy thing happens to him in his September 2nd entry, right?
1: He says something passed between him and sort of blotted out what he could see sort of like what Will described earlier. So something kind of moved, but he, he couldn't see anything. It was right. just
2: the predator effect.
1: The predator effect. Yeah. Something distorted his vision and then was gone.
2: Oh, you're right. It really is like Whisper in Darkness. One of his entries, I shall not go. It shall not drive me away. You know, it's that alien invasion. There's things out there. Yeah. And finally, he does the, on October 5th, he says, Harker, come out and spend a few weeks with me. So it's that same kind of thing. He's got to call out a companion. Yep. And he's got a level head, so if I'm going crazy, he'll be able to help me out. Right. The last entry is when he really delves into that from beyond kind of thing that we're hitting over and over and over as we go through this weird fiction. Yeah. Great God pan. I mean, everything that we've been covering.
1: Yeah, there's something beyond our senses, another world that if we were just, things were just a little bit different, if we were a bit more perceptive, we would be able to see these things this world the threats
2: the threats yeah if we only had the apparatus and the closing paragraph of the story articulates it quite well
0: it is known to seamen
2: that a school of whales
0: basking or sporting on the surface of the ocean miles apart with the convexity of the earth between them will sometimes dive at the same instant all gone out of sight at a moment the signal has been sounded too grave for the ear of the sailor at the masthead and his comrades on the deck who nevertheless feel its vibrations in the ship as the stones of a cathedral are stirred by the base of the organ. As with sounds, so with colors. At each end of the solar spectrum, the chemists can detect the presence of what are known as actinic rays. They represent colors, integral colors in the composition of light, which we are unable to discern. The human eye is an imperfect instrument. Its range is but a few octaves of the real chromatic scale. I am not mad. There are colors that we cannot see. And God help me. The damn thing is of such a color.
1: Now, and that's the end of the story. That's it. You know, I've got one beef with his scientific assessment of what's going on. If, Mm -hmm. If the thing were composed of a material that emits a color that can't be seen, then it would just look black.
2: Is that what it would be?
1: No, it would be invisible, because for something to be invisible, whatever light shining behind it would have to be able to go around it or go through it.
2: Of course. Well, that's why these things are a little confusing, this and in the Horla as well, because the things aren't invisible. You can't see through them because they block other things right. in your field of vision. Yeah. So they are saying they have, I mean, there's something that you are seeing. But I hear what you're saying yeah definitely would be black right or or would it be would it be like pitch black I guess it'd be absorbing all colors right
1: yeah, well it just wouldn't be reflecting any color, so if it doesn't reflect any color, it'll look mm-hmm. just black.
2: But also these things are not necessarily made of the material that most things are made up of on this planet, you know? And then the horror of the way it sort of drifted by, almost as if it we're like a mist. And I kind of got the impression this might be like that as well.
1: What this is describing, it's bending light around it. If you can see through it partially, then it's either bending light around it or light is coming through it, as in it's not completely substantial just some this is some yokel out trying to make up some stuff he doesn't know what the hell's going on
2: yeah of course and i mean the mysteries of how a werewolf's ghost works <laughs> these are things that have tortured scholars for millennia really yeah
1: millennia absolutely
2: you know so there's a, i was looking on the wikipedia page about this story and they mm-hmm. said uh, there's an adaptation this is a funny connection there's an adaptation by toby hooper on the masters of horror series oh of this just of this, yeah, just oh, the okay. damn thing. Yeah, that's. I thought, okay, cool. I don't think I saw that, but uh, I'll remember to mention it. And so, I when I looked at the IMDb page real quick, and it has Sean Patrick Flannery in it, and I suddenly remembered. Oh, I watched it. I watched it. You know, whenever that show came out a few years ago. You did. I did. And you know, where Dad? We've talked about on the show. We've a talked few about times, where Dad? Yeah. <laughs> where Dad was that poster that Andrew designed uh-huh. because he just needed background posters. Right,
1: because he was working for a prop house at the time.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so Where Dad wound up being in Scream 3, and we were very happy about that. Mm -hmm. It's cool to be have our poster be in a Wes Craven movie. Now, (laughs) there was another poster that we made, because he had asked, like, what are a couple other ideas, called Jesus Heist, that was like, I thought would be like a kooky, independent, I don't know what it's about. Either guys dress like Jesus and rob a bank, or guys Mm -hmm. rob a church, I don't know what it is. Something like
1: that. Something
2: kooky like that. But it was called Jesus Heist. I think you even took the photo for the right poster
1: yeah yeah and the, the catch line was uh forgive me father for i have sinned
2: right yeah. <laughs> anyway that was another one of the posters and i was watching this adaptation and at the beginning they show the small texas town where the sheriff works or whatever and the movie theater in that town is playing jesus heist yes <laughs> got the poster up in front yeah nice. so if you if you see the adaptation of the story we have a movie poster right in the beginning oh, i
1: didn't even know that that's amazing. yeah yeah
2: i forgot all about it till i was Till about an hour ago, when I was writing some notes on this, like I said, we're going to talk more about Ambrose Bierce. He was very informed by his. To make another connection, he was very informed by his military experience. And earlier in the episode, I'd said that I was familiar with an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge because of the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. I had recently been reading up on Rod Serling a little bit, and I you know I love that guy, and I love all this. I love the Twilight Zone so much. I love all those stories, and he was very informed by his military service. There was a story about him that really kind of disturbed me when he was serving in world war ii Mm -hmm. he was in the philippines there was another jewish private named uh, melvin levy that he was friends with and levy was underneath this palm tree just resting kind of delivering a little joke monologue you know doing some comedy and a food crate dropped from above this was for them from a plane and it decapitated him
1: oh my god
2: in front of everybody you know it was just completely random death in the middle of this war of one of his good friends. Oh my god! And it just it like really disturbed me to think about that. You know, they were all just laying there relaxing. He was, and then the crate came down, and phew, that was it. You know, the meaninglessness of it that you kind of see creep into some of the things that he does in the Twilight Zone and that sort of thing. So I don't know. I just really that story really struck me in the last week.
1: Yeah, that's pretty I'm obviously mean, he he fought it's uh Shiloh. The Battle of Charles. Ambrose? Ambrose, Ambrose Spears did, yeah, and he wrote, right, yeah. he wrote some a whole story about his kind of experience there and the war, and it was pretty. From what I've read about it, I've actually read his account of it, but it's supposedly one of the more bloody, disgusting, horrible battles. And it was just horrible. Not that war is ever good, but it was just <laughs> not. particularly.
2: Oh, the ice cream wars of the seventies. <laughs> mm, that was a delicious war.
1: That was a good war. But it was funny, in Supernatural Horror Literature, just talking about um, Lovecraft, going back to Lovecraft, he quotes from Samuel Loveman. And you remember Loveman was a friend of of Lovecraft's. Mm -hmm. Actually, the character in the statement of Randolph Carter,
2: Harley Ward. And we talked about Loveman a lot.
1: So this is a quote from not Lovecraft, but a quote from Samuel Loveman talking about Bierce. In Bierce, the evocation of horror becomes, for the first time, not so much the perception or perversion of Poe or Maupoussin, but an atmosphere definite and uncannily precise. Words so simple that one would be prone to ascribe them to the limitations of a literary hack take on an unholy horror, a new and unguessed transformation. In Poe, one finds it a tour de force in Maupassant's A Nervous Engagement of the Flagellated Climax. To Bierce, simply and sincerely, Diabolism held in its tormented depth a legitimate and reliant means to an end. Yet, a tact confirmation with nature is in every instance insisted upon. And then he talks about the death of Halpern Frazier, which I will save for when we talk about that story.
2: Yeah, because we're going to cover that story next. I like what he's talking about. Like, it's strange to hear Lovecraft acknowledge, wow, this guy's conveying this great feelings of horror and weirdness and all that sort of thing. And he's doing it with precise, limited language. Yeah. So, so so much so that that Lovecraft even suspects for a second, you know, might make one think he doesn't know how to write. Doesn't he know how to use adverbs twenty times in a sentence? That's how a writer does it, you know. Yeah,
1: he's he's really outstanding, Pierce's. Like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting into more of his stuff. Now, I'll,
2: I'll leave you with this one little fun sure. fact about Ambrose Pierce: he, uh, tenth of thirteen children, and wow. uh, all of the kids had names beginning with the letter A. Abigail, Amelia, Ann, Addison, Aurelius, Augustus, Almeda, Andrew, Albert, Ambrose, Arthur, Adelia, and Aurelia.
1: Aurelia, that's a good one.
2: All right, so the death of Halpin Fraser is next, and I don't know anything about that one. So Next
1: week, yeah, we're going to be doing that for probably a couple weeks. It's a bit longer yeah. of a story, and I'm looking forward to getting into it. I am too. I just want to remind folks that we have a Kickstarter going. If you have any interest in Chad and I doing a live show and hearing it, either in Providence or hearing about it after the fire, hearing it, after the fact, yeah. then contribute. And yes, if please contribute. If you're going to be there, then please definitely contribute.
2: It'd be fun to do kind of an NPR-style coverage. You know, not record the panels and that sort of thing, but just get around the convention, see what people oh, are talking absolutely. about and thinking about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, and I'm I'm with you, Chad. I really want to do something where, you know, we we do this show kind of on a on a very fast turnaround. We we, we record on Sunday and we edit during the course of the week and then we release it. But with this, I'd like to take and really do an interesting edit, do some cool sound stuff, more like an episode of of This American Life, but it would be This Lovecraftian Life.
2: Exactly. So please go to the Kickstarter, kick in a little money, whatever you can afford, and hopefully we meet our goals and we can fly out there to Providence, where I've never been.
1: I've never been either. Yeah, we've got to get to the Lovecraft Holy Land and do this thing. So please contribute.
2: That's all we have for this week. We'll be back with the Death of Half of next. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm, I'm Chris Lackey. Have... <laughs> this is HPPodcraft.com. Uh, yeah. You've been listening
1: to the HP Lovecraft <laughs> literary podcast also.
2: At, H... yeah, at HPPodcraft.com. That was <laughs> the
0: <best>. HPPodcraft.com. <laughs> No, <laughs> no,